0: Hello, welcome to the National Affairs podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane, And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated
1: and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Sally Sattel. Dr. Sattel is a psychiatrist, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and a visiting professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University Irving Medical Center.
0: For our spring 2020 issue, Sally wrote a fascinating essay titled, The E-Cigarette Revolution That Wasn't. In her piece, Sally explored the history of the e-cigarette from the moment it first appeared on the market in China in 2003 to the proliferation of sleek modern devices used today by America's college students and even some high school students. Sally argues that when it comes to e-cigarettes, many of America's public health institutions have failed to recognize the harm reduction potential of this new technology. They've consequently misled and misguided both the American public and America's policymakers. Sally, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you very much.
0: I think most of our listeners are familiar a little bit with what e-cigarettes are. I'm sure people have seen them around or have friends that use them or use them themselves. For us reading the article, we didn't know much about where they came from or how they work, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are in the same boat there. So to start off here, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the e-cigarette, where it came from, and then how it's different from a more traditional cigarette?
2: Sure. E-cigarettes, electronic cigarettes, are an alternative to regular conventional cigarettes. The latter combust tobacco, they burn tobacco, and they release tar and gases. And that is what causes lung cancer, Mm -hmm. pulmonary illness, cardiovascular disease, and worsens diabetes, all the kinds of health problems we associate with smoking, which happens to be the biggest preventable cause of death, accountable for about 480,000 deaths a year. Smoking is undeniably a bad thing. (laughs) E-cigarettes don't burn tobacco. They basically uncouple. I mean, their virtue is to uncouple the nicotine, which is what smokers want, from the tar and the noxious gases. Mm -hmm. So an e-cigarette, even though they come in many forms, and we can quickly go through them, they contain four basic elements. One is nicotine, although I should say some vaping devices, the ones you might get in vape stores, can actually be sold without the nicotine. But nicotine, Mm -hmm. propylene glycol, vegetable glycerin, and flavoring. Now, I should say propylene glycol and vegetable glycerin are... Designated by the Food and Drug Administration is generally regarded as safe. Some of those compounds are actually in asthma inhalers or or used to be in older asthma inhalers. They are a major component of theatrical fog. By themselves, they're not dangerous in limited exposures. I should say right off that no one knows what 20 years, let's say, of inhaling propylene glycol, vegetable glycerin will do. It's possible it could have some negative effect on the respiratory system, and that's why epidemiologists have to follow the health of vapors going forward. However, these devices have been around in this country since 2007, being perfected all along the way. There have been no reports of pulmonary illness, so at least we know to date, they don't pose a high risk thus far, and we also Mm -hmm. know they have some advantages. For smokers who have switched to them, their asthma improves significantly, actually blood pressure improves, and there are other health benefits. So the e-cigarette was developed in 2003 by a Chinese inventor who's actually, his father had died from lung cancer and who himself was a smoker. His name was Han Lik, L-I-K. He devised what we call the modern e-cigarette, back in the 50s, there were efforts to Separate the nicotine from the smoke. And that's always been a big, it's really been the underlying motif of, of all these devices is that you want to uncouple these two because, again, it's the nicotine that may addict, but it's the smoke that kills. And nicotine itself, I should say also, because a lot of people don't realize this, even I was dismayed to see some physicians that nicotine itself does not cause cancer. It actually has cognitive benefits in terms of concentration. And it's actually been, nicotine molecules have been worked on by pharmaceutical industry for years to help Parkinson's disease, ulcerative colitis, possibly dementia. They're known to have neuroprotective effects. So nicotine itself is is a benign substance. You should not ingest it if you are pregnant and if you just had a heart attack or if any kind of significant cardiovascular instability as the, a doctor would also tell you not to drink too much caffeine after you've had a heart attack, You know, because these are mild stimulants. But as far as effects on the body, nicotine is a relatively quite a benign substance. So anyway, 2003, they finally came to the United States about 2007. They came in the form of something called a cigalike, which looked like a cigarette. And basically they were fairly weak they didn't produce much of a nicotine blood level. The battery was pretty low. And it's the battery that heats up these, the solution that I mentioned before, nicotine, mm-hmm. propylene, glycol, vegetable glycerin, and flavor that people inhale. And then we had a what's called a second and third generation of larger devices. They're sort of clunky, you might say. You can get them in vape shops. And they're refillable. Once you finished with a Sigalike, you'd throw it out. But these other devices where people can, you've seen them blow large vapor clouds from them. Right. And you have to go to a store and fill them with e liquid. So that was the second and third generation. And then Juul came along, J-U-U-L. That's also the name of the company that makes it. And that's called a pod system. That came along in 2015. And that's when awareness of vaping really I think came into public view. It was certainly not hidden before that, but because Juul devices were unfortunately popular with teens, that's what got a lot of attention.
1: So the more I sort of hear about e-cigarettes from medical experts like yourself, I guess the more clear their potential for harm reduction becomes. And what's sort of strange, and you note this in your piece, is that rather than seeing e-cigarettes as an unprecedented public health tool in the fight against smoking, The more and more visible e-cigarettes became, the more and more the American public seemed to regard them with suspicion, if not outright hostility. So you write in your piece, just to back that up with some data, that the National Cancer Institute found in 2012 that 39% of respondents believed that e-cigarettes were safer or much safer than smoking. The next year, 43% held that belief. And then in 2014, that number actually began to decline to 17% by 2018. And you write that in 2019, a Reuters poll found that 63% of Americans disagreed with the statement that vaping is healthier than traditional cigarettes. So I guess the question would be, what's the story behind that? those numbers? If, if e-cigarettes are as safe relative to conventional smoking than, as they seem to be, then how did the American public come to believe that they were so dangerous?
2: The upper level of relative safety compared to smoking has been put at 95%. And that comes from Public Health England, which is the which is the UK's equivalent of our Centers for Disease Control. And others have estimated maybe 90%, maybe even 80% safer. Some even have said 99% safer, but it is not just a little safer, it's significantly safer than combusted tobacco. And you're right that the general public had. You know, there was a fair amount of enthusiasm about these devices. I remember starting to pay attention around 2014, and that happened to be the year that the Oxford English Dictionary christened vape as its word of, of the year. And that really was a tribute to the impressive rise of these devices. So They'd sold about $1 billion or surpassed that by the close of 2013. Some analysts were predicting the demise of the combusted cigarette market. And again, in theory and ultimately in practice, we we know that if you can remove the smoke, you've removed so much of the risk. But that enthusiasm around 2014 is the what I say is think is the turning point. Right after 2014. There started to be a dribble of articles that were negative about e cigarettes. And the basic concerns were that, that it would renormalize smoking. To be fair, the anti smoking campaign had done an excellent job of reducing smoking from almost 50% of Americans, the men around the 60s when the Surgeon General report came out, to about this year, 13.7%, so around maybe 15 or 16% around 2014. Now, that's a significant drop, and it would be truly, it would be a public health disaster if that those gains were reversed. They were also concerned that e-cigarettes might lead non-smoking youth to initiate smoking, so to serve as a quote-unquote gateway to smoking. Now, these weren't necessarily far-fetched concerns. You certainly had to take them seriously, but what we could tell, and the data were already starting to be collected in 2012, 2013 on on vaping, is that this wasn't happening. Adult smoking continued to to go down and teen smoking continued to go down. In fact, the rate of decline in teen smoking became steeper after e-cigarettes became more popular. But that's what they were afraid of, and around 2014, it was clear that the health institutions were taking this seriously. There was a publication from the Surgeon General's Office that year that recognized the potential of e-cigarettes to wean smokers off of cigarettes, just the potential. It wasn't wildly enthusiastic, but I think healthy skepticism was in order, and it definitely devoted many pages to the promise of e-cigarettes. The second of the, the three things that, in my history, started in 2014, which I consider the turning point, was that the FDA called for comments on whether the FDA itself should assume regulatory jurisdiction over e-cigarettes. That was called, effectively, should have deemed cigarettes under its authority. And it was allowed to basically make this request thanks to 2009 legislation, the Tobacco Control Act. So that was another marker of the seriousness with which these devices were being taken, should they be regulated by the FDA. And the third was a report from the CDC that youth vaping, had tripled between 2013 and 2014. I should emphasize that youth vaping really meant at least one puff a month. So that tripling, while not to be dismissed in any way, Mm -hmm. but typically represented what most of us who think about this topic would consider experimentation. But those three things really got the attention of the so-called tobacco control movement. Now, now that, that movement had been certainly watching e-cigarettes warily out of its eye since they came to the U.S. in about 2007. But that really galvanized them. They realized, wow, you know, this is, this is serious, and these devices are gaining traction and may become part of the, the landscape of public health. And you would think <laughs> that they would welcome this, would welcome... Research on it would welcome the epidemiology on it. Certainly, the UK does and has. And if you follow their reaction to vaping, it's almost a mirror image of our societies. <laughs> but in any case, they were extremely suspicious of this harm reduction. You use that word, and harm reduction, in fact, is, is a word frequently applied to e cigarettes. The idea being that smoking is risky. So for people who won't change their risky behavior or don't want to change their risky behavior, how can we make it safer for them to engage in, in this case, would be nicotine procurement, which one could argue in and of itself isn't that risky at all. But in any case, and the short story is, going into the history, is why were these people so sensitized to this idea and and why why were they so skeptical of it and and hostile towards it? And the answer which is greater length, of course, in the National Affairs article, and I should say on my own website, this group of tobacco control, and and it's, you know, it's it's a community of scientists, researchers, public health experts, health activists, they had done battle with the tobacco companies, you know, from the 70s on. And they had done righteous battle because the tobacco companies, needless to say, were a lot less than forthright they were, you know, outright deceptive about the, the dangers of, of smoking. They had attempted to do harm reduction in terms of low-risk cigarette, low-tar, white cigarettes. So the point is there was compensation in these reduced devices. And so people did not basically derive any harm reduction from that. And it turned out that cigarette companies became aware of this and they, of course, conceal bad information. And so this led to an you know, enormous suspicion on the part of tobacco activists that now anytime they heard the word harm reduction, they'd have an immediate PTSD-like flashback <laughs> to what harm reduction looked like before. Well, we were fooled once before, and it's not going to happen again. The e-cigarette market, until Jill came along and Altria, which used to be Philip Morris, bought a large share in it, the e-cigarette market was... Not dominated by tobacco companies. A lot of them were small companies. Some of those Sigalikes that I mentioned early on were put out by major tobacco companies, but they were never all that that popular for heavy smokers. But again, it, just the symbolism, just the general concept of this is a safer device, and they were literally burned once before, and there became just a righteous. You know, indignation that was transferred to e-cigarettes, and then the idea that that youth might favor them was just an, an intolerable idea because they continued to believe. I mean, you'll read about this that nicotine is dangerous to the developing teen brain. That they were afraid that there would be, as I mentioned before, a gateway, a progression to smoking from mm-hmm. vaping. And as I said earlier. Okay. That's a reasonable thing to, to inquire about, but now we have six good years, I think seven at this point, of data showing that teen smoking continues to drop. So certainly if there was a gateway effect, you would see that pattern, which had been going on for years, teen vaping, teen smoking had been dropping for years. But if, if vaping among teens, which I said before is largely experimental was to attract young people to smoking, then we would see a reversal of of that pattern or a slowing of it, at least. And as I said, it got steeper once e-cigarettes became more popular. And we also know, again, these citations are are, are in the paper, that I can't tell you that there's never been a, a young person who's first vaped and then gone on to smoke a cigarette. But even so, Colleagues of mine have really parsed these data very carefully and found that to the extent that some kids did migrate towards cigarettes, more young people migrated off cigarettes. So the off-ramp towards vaping among teens who smoked heavily is quite high. And in fact, that's where you see the regular vaping. It tends to be very concentrated in young people who already smoked or used a tobacco product.
0: And so Sally, to kind of sum up your perspective here, so obviously back in the 80s and earlier, the tobacco control movement was justifiably maybe concerned about the deception from the big tobacco companies, but today it's different in the sense that we have a new product that you know, through innovation can help, hopefully help smokers, you know, transition off of traditional cigarettes into something that's much safer for them. And that, you know, we should allow that time to see how it works and develops and do studies on it and, and make sure that it's safe, but also that, yeah, make sure that it, you know, it really can wean people off of smoking and, and, and you know, preserve their health and safety.
2: Oh, well, we know it can wean. That's another, I'm, I'm going to regale you in, in a moment <laughs> with some of the, I have to say, outrageous statements that people in the field of public health and even hmm. some physicians are making, it's really quite shocking. And that was a motivation for writing this article is that, in effect, the promise of of this device, which which really, truly is revolutionary, was actually, I don't know if it's been destroyed, but it's certainly been significantly hobbled by the people you would trust to tell you the truth about interventions for, for smoking. But one of the things we might hear from I'll just call them the anti-vaping partisans, is that e-cigarettes are ineffective. They don't wean adults off cigarettes. Well, we we know that's not true. Probably the the best, most complete, largest study on that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, the double-blinded, controlled. That was done January of 2019. And showed that vaping was twice as effective as all other kinds of what's called nicotine replacement gums, patches, Mm. lozenges, things like that. The most common way of quitting is still stopping, is cold turkey, (laughs) actually. But for Mm. people who use devices, vaping is more popular than patches and gum combined. I mean, people are are gravitating to it because it is it is helpful. But yet, you hear from for years the You know, the former CDC director under President Obama was just constantly talking about. In fact, his words were that these devices are guilty until proven innocent. That's not, those aren't the words of healthy skepticism. That's the word of condemnation. And he would talk about the gateway to smoking for teens repeatedly, the risk of that, even though his own agency was producing the data showing that was not happening. The Tennessee Medical Association, University of Rochester, and these are just websites I'm, I'm referring to, say that cigarettes are no safer than smoking. Even Lancet, that's the prestigious British medical journal, said, I mean, within the last year, no solid evidence base underpins marketing claims that they are healthier than cigarettes or that they can support quitting. Harvard pediatrician called it bioterrorism. He was referring obviously, to, <laughs> to children. I, I must go on just a little bit more just to give Please. you
1: yeah. <laughs>
2: a sense of, of the kind of the wall of resistance and 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 disinformation, not misinformation. This, this is disinformation because anyone who reads the literature will see this is not true. The American Heart Association said the relative safety of vaping is a, quote, unfounded belief with e-cigarettes having many downsides and few potential upsides. Well, in truth, they have lots of upsides. As I said, we don't know what many, many years of vaping can do. We don't know that. These certainly users have to be watched over time, although even when we get those data, we'll have to keep in mind that these these people were smokers before. If and when lung disease did crop up, we'll have to be cautious to try to parse that from from the pre-existing vulnerabilities that were instigated by the earlier smoking. And then just the final one I'll say is from the American Lung Association. I mean, these are organizations you want to trust. It's disputed, he referred to in the Times, last year, within a year, disputed perception that e-cigarettes are a safer alternative and pointed to a lack of information, I'm quoting here, a lack of information about what chemicals they contain and the paucity of research. Their chemicals are all listed, they're all registered with the Food and Drug Administration. Now, chemicals are one thing, and then they're heated, and then new chemicals form. There's, there, that is true, but there was much, honestly, hysteria concerning formaldehyde at, at very high rates of formaldehyde, which is a carcinogen, but as we all know, mm-hmm. the, the dose makes the poison, and in low levels, we inhale formaldehyde every day, but there was a report of very high levels of formaldehyde. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine around, I want to say, 2015. And it was a shocking report, even though it was a letter to the editor. But you, you have data and letters in the New England Journal of Medicine. To make a long story short, what those researchers did was effectively burn the toast. They turned up the, the voltage on their devices so high and produced a smoke that was so accurate, no one would ever smoke it, excuse me, vape it, But it produced high levels of formaldehyde, which would be a great concern, if true. This was all over the media. And you've probably seen that. I'm sure everyone has seen these articles. Vaping causes heart attacks. Vaping in teens causes brain damage. Again, there's just, this is not supported by the evidence. Either there are two classes of responses. Either there are no evidence to support what they say, or there is evidence to refute you know, what is mm-hmm. alleged. And that is just a constant refrain. And and again, and I think of the analogy, you know, let's say you have young kids and, you know, you're a little confused about, let's say, vaccinating them, which sort of unfortunate you're, you're at that point. But let's say your neighbor is a staunch anti-vaxxer or a relative, or you've just been reading the wrong popular literature, and you start to wonder. So, I'm telling you, you go to the CDC website, you go to your state public health office, many of which I should say gave out all kinds of false information as well about vaping. But you would go to the website of the Surgeon General. That's another office that did not portray vaping accurately. But you go to all those entities, you ask your doctor, should I vaccinate my kid? And you're going to get the right answer, which is right. yes, of course. <laughs> but this is, I think it may be one of the, at least in modern memory, one of the only arenas within health where it's almost impossible to find a trusted source. And that's really a tragedy because these devices offer so much relative benefit that to that to mislead the public. And to mislead smokers and to mislead the people who love smokers and tell them effectively, oh, these devices are just as dangerous, which, of course, perpetuates smoking. And people who can't quit, usually by the time you turn to an e-cigarette, you have tried everything. You've tried patches and gums. And now to be dissuaded from that final option, which until we come up with something better, is your best option is just public health malpractice.
0: Yeah, so I just wanted to ask you a quick follow-up to that. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier, the majority of people that quit smoking, they still do it just by stopping. And is is for these public health experts, is their position that we should just focus everything on getting people to stop and that e-cigarettes is kind of a sidetrack to that and maybe even potentially harmful? Is, is that what their position is?
2: Oh, yeah. They think that, I don't mean to make a monolith out of them, they seem to come in, so three camps. One camp is just incredibly negative about vaping, thinks no one should do it, that the benefits don't outweigh the harms of smoking, which is frankly really shocking when you look at the the data. Mm -hmm. Others are more amenable to the idea that it might be used as a bridge to quitting altogether. And that's fine. I mean, listen, it's better not to take anything into your lungs, of course, if those are your options. But again, it's always, when it comes to harm reduction, the question is, Always compared to what? You know, it's yep. using an e-cigarette compared to smoking. If that's your choice, then vaping is the clear alternative. If quitting outright is an option for you, then, then that's the best alternative. I mean, patches and gums are very low risk. And then there is a minority of people in the public health domain and who see vaping as an acceptable long-term alternative for people who don't want to Quit smoking, or find they
1: can't. And unfortunately, it it seems, the harm reductionist faction has decidedly lost, at least for now, to what we might call the sort of more alarmist faction within the medical community. And the consequences, as you note, don't bode particularly well for the future of vaping. If this is a, a public image battle, the alarmists are winning, and the American public increasingly thinks vaping is not at all a safe alternative to smoking. So I guess my, my question would be has the game been played and lost, or is there still a way forward for e-cigarettes and the sort of vaping revolution to eventually happen in America?
2: It's a real uphill battle because the politicians look to these organizations, and even the National Academy of Medicine, which is very sophisticated, they did acknowledge that it's considerably, that vaping is considerably safer than smoking, but repeated the gateway. I call it a trope at this point. So the politicians look to these university professors, these public health agencies, the CDC, and they get misinformation and they also get a significant asymmetry of focus. It's all on children. It's all on hypothesized risk to children and almost nothing on benefits to adults. So that's why politicians have been pushing flavor bans on e-cigarettes. Now, a flavor ban is likely to turn... Vapors back to smoking. It's one of the most attractive things about it to, to vapors. So you have misinformed politicians, you have what the scientists would call a an availability cascade where so much misinformation slash disinformation is is in the atmosphere and it just reinforces itself. That's what people hear. And they've just polluted the environment so densely with false information and alarmism that yes, I wish I could be more optimistic. Now, I want to talk in a minute about why things were bad up until last summer and why they even got worse after that. But I will say what could be an optimistic point is that there are a few countries, England, New Zealand, Canada, who have been much more forward-looking on this, much more data-driven. They see vaping as something to incentivize. The National Health Service actually sells e-cigarette products in the gift shops of the hospitals. Really? Um, wow. That's they amazing. <laughs> they buy They suggest it for smokers. So these are countries that have really seen the great benefit and future potential, and, and we'll have to see, you know, when they have really eradicated, you know, come close to eradicating the diseases that we associate with prolonged smoking, maybe then we'll finally wake up. Now, if I could mention a little bit about why things got so much worse. If you could imagine that it went this summer. As you may recall, there was an outbreak of, of lung disease and even some mortality among people who, I want to say, quote unquote, vaped. And the reason I say, quote unquote, vape is because remember, vaping in a way is like, It's like drinking in that you can drink milk or, you know, you can drink hydrochloric acid. You can vape commercial nicotine or you can vape contaminated tetrahydrocannabinol, contaminated Mm. cannabis products. And that is what the lung mortality was due to. Uh, Again, the first case was back in about a year ago now, and then it really gained momentum in the summer and and early fall. I mean, it with headlines and it was very distressing and it was a, a true public health catastrophe, mainly among young people. It took months for the CDC, it took till, last January, till this January for the CDC to officially acknowledge that these deaths were not from vaping commercial nicotine. They were from vaping bootlegged cannabis products that were spiked with vitamin E acetate. As early as September, there was good indication that that contaminant that, and that THC, contaminated THC was the cause of this. And in fact, I think one of the first entities to, to bring this to public light was the cannabis industry, which would make a lot of sense. They want to police themselves. And then the FDA did acknowledge, yes, this is most of the cases are traceable to, to contaminated cannabis. CDC danced around it. In October, I did hear a testimony by an official at the CDC, and, and she was uh, very reasonable. But the agency itself took till January to officially endorse that, that reality. So even that dragging of the feet just took so long, and it scared people who ha- were vaping, sure. former smokers who had switched to vaping, vaping commercial products, it scared them and many of them went back to smoking and that was very dangerous you know again the truth finally did come out but there were months lost and again it was another example about the just the lack of intellectual integrity that unfortunately surrounds this this issue and and has you know, contaminated as you say the the future prospects of, of vaping in this country so that was a further blow to vaping and then we saw We did leave out one. This is a complicated trajectory, I guess. But the lung illnesses were started in the spring of 2019 and went to pretty much petered out by the late fall of 2019. But prior to that, the 2018 federal data on vaping, teen vaping, showed a 78% increase in teen vapors. Again, most of them experimenting, but not all. And this year, although teen vaping still went up, although by less, maybe about 40%. We did see, and this is of concern for sure, that up to about 12% of teens did endorse regular smoking, which means about 20, 20 out of the last 30 days, at least 20 out of the last 30 days, of vaping. So that's is, that is that's not experimentation. That is significant intake. And that's probably attributable to Juul, which was so <laughs> user-friendly, so sleek, so attractive, so easy to conceal among teens. Well,
0: that's so interesting. I think that kind of leads into our next question, Sally, of are there certain regulations you think should be put in place that would maybe reassure the public that, yes, e-cigarettes are safe and here's why, and, and yes, we're concerned that teens might be using it too much, and here's some, you know, some way we can reassure the public on that?
2: Well, that's another double-edged sword in a way. Let me start with the easy... It always is, yeah. <laughs> As far as teen use, yeah, the Congress had passed, and um, the president signed a law that would make the sale of any tobacco product. And e-cigarettes are considered tobacco products, even though there's no tobacco in them, although the nicotine in them is derived from tobacco. But passed a law that made it illegal to sell tobacco products to anyone under 21. So that that's yeah. important. E-cigarettes are not, they're not FDA approved. They're regulated to the extent that anyone who's commercial seller has to register with the FDA and submit the chemical profile of what's in them and the devices that mm-hmm. they use and the voltage and the batteries and the coil specifications, this kind of thing but they're not approved by the the FDA. And I can understand why the average person hears that and thinks, oh my gosh, it's the Wild West. Applications were due actually this month, but because of COVID, they've been moved back to September 20th. So I think approval would be a helpful move in terms of of reassurance. But uh, when I alluded to the double-edged sword, I'm referring now to the approval regime, which is incredibly expensive, very burdensome, has a requirement that it is very difficult to meet, which is to say it's what's it's called a public health burden, that the population health has to improve. I f- believe that that could be met by showing the reduced risk. But if, if you look at, again, take the teen use into account, even though we've seen no negative effects, and I have to say yet, but you know from teen use, and I don't, should say right away, Teens who haven't first smoked, you know, or smokers should not be vaping, but the fact that they have gravitated to uses could be considered a significant negative in that column. So one wonders, A, how many businesses can even afford to get their products approved, and then whether or not they would even meet those standards. Personally, I think that we should follow a model that's more like the UK's, where Basically, there are there is a standard, a minimum standard for battery safety and elect, the electronics and the e-liquid. For example, it shouldn't have something called diacetyl in it, and and it's largely been removed by companies anyway. But it might, in high doses, it might lead to some complications. Even that's probably an exaggeration, since cigarettes contain ten times the amount of or a hundred times the amount of diacetyl that e-cigarettes contain. And yet there are almost vanishingly a few reports of what's called popcorn lung, which is a serious, a serious lung complication, but we hardly see it in smokers. So the idea that it would be seen in tea vapors is very, very low, but diacetyl is the chemical that, that's considered responsible for it. So if you could basically have those kinds of minimum standards for safety and products could pass those, to me, that's a much more efficient way of proceeding. That would require a, a truly an act of Congress. They'd have to amend, I believe, the 2009 Tobacco Control Act. And again, I mean, everyone's obviously completely preoccupied, understandably, with COVID, but there would be no appetite for doing that. And because there's so much, as I say, the, the layer of misinformation and false impressions and half truths and, and outright lies about e cigarettes is as, as thick as the Arctic ice. <laughs> Even with global warming, it's still very thick. And very hard to break through.
1: Well, sort of on that topic, and as we start to wrap up, we, we wanted to get your thoughts on what this story might say about the American public health establishment in, in a broader sense. Part of what I think makes your essay such a fascinating and in a lot of ways alarming read is that the public health community didn't merely fail to recognize a potential tool in the fight for public health. They largely and, and kind of zealously lined up against it. Even as the data suggested that vaping likely represented a public health victory, potentially the difference between life and death for millions of American smokers, a huge number of our our biggest public health institutions continued to agitate against e-cigarettes. And I wanted to know if you thought that there were lessons that could be learned about how we think about society's sort of scientific experts, or if this is like a very localized small problem, or if this represents maybe a bigger institutional problem?
2: Well, you're certainly right. The act of suppression was just ex- extreme. And it's it's very interesting in light of it's hard to answer that question without thinking about the current crisis we're in. I'm almost reassured that, with the exception of people who are in that conspiracy camp who feel that the virus was either a pandemic or not as serious, <laughs> just like the flu. They are in the minority, vocal, of course, but, mm-hmm. but you know there's a lot of respect for Anthony Fauci. There's a lot of respect oh, yeah. for Deborah Burks. Um, and of course, our colleague, Scott Gottlieb, and sure. they are frontline public health people. In fact, I'm sure you've watched a lot of cable. I have. I, <laughs> I mean, every, every professor of epidemiology, every virologist that I've heard is someone I take seriously and strikes me as incredibly knowledgeable. So, here you have public health at its best. I mean, yes, some of the institutions may have been slow to act, but they all recognized the gravity of it. There's a whole discussion on why it took long in places to come to the surface, but it wasn't because the public health community didn't recognize it. in some way, I, I think that it's reassuring in that these officials have proven themselves to be knowledgeable and responsible and and concerned. So you have that, but I wonder how much. I don't think that one might say, I wish that I would transfer to the vaping issue, but unless Deborah Burks and Scott Gottlieb, who has been quite critical of vaping in some ways, and Anthony and Dr. Fauci get up there and argue for e cigarette in other words, people who already have such credibility as public health experts <laughs> were just now support vaping, I don't think it would transfer because, again, until the attitudes and dispositions and agendas of those who high profile people who've been so hostile towards e-cigarettes changes, I don't see how that message unfortunately is going to change. It's highly you know, problematic. Just want to mention this kind of continuum that a colleague told me this. He said, yeah. when it comes to public health, you're pretty much talking about you know, tornado politics versus abortion politics. And and what he meant was that on one end, Ooh. tornado politics means something bad is happening. You you, you can't you see it in the down on the horizon, you've got yeah. gotten warnings about it. It's gonna be over pretty soon, but it's gonna be bad. And basically the response is: let's do everything we can. We just care about the tornado and protecting ourselves from it. There's no politics involved. It has to be done. And then there's abortion at the other end, which we're not talking about a science base. We're not talking about a meteorological event. We're talking about something that's over ninety nine percent clash of of values, a moral morass. I mean it will, I don't know if we'll ever solve that. but that's at the other end. Covid is closer to tornado, but even that has become politicized and and, and yeah. sadly has tapped into some you know tribal dynamics within in the culture. But the, the facts are, are are the facts, how we interpret them. Are different for sure, and the assumptions that go into the models can can be argued. So it's not quite a tornado politics in terms of being black or white. We have to s- protect ourselves from this encroaching disaster. And unfortunately, e-cigarettes has just gotten closer. It should be in that if we're again thinking of a continuum, the e-cigarette should should be at the far end of the continuum where it should be data you know as data driven as possible. But unfortunately, it's been so contaminated and shot through with politics and alarmism and hostility towards so much leftover taint from big tobacco that it's just become a very difficult topic to make amenable to facts and and to future facts because we have to continue to collect data on people who, who vape. But what we know now is enormously encouraging. And unfortunately it's been drowned out by misinformation and worry. Frankly, hysteria and a complete lack of balance. We I mean, have there are trade-offs. Kids are, right. are going to experiment with things. How do we take that into account and balance it with the good, the incredible good that comes to adult smokers who are the ones at risk?
0: I think that's a good a good point to end on, Sally. And I mean, obviously, yeah, policymakers, they're always facing trade-offs. I think there's gonna be a lot to learn from the COVID crisis. And I think as your piece points out, there's gonna be a lot to learn from e-cigarettes as well. So we'll definitely continue to follow that. Well, thanks so much, Sally, for being here with us. This is a really fun conversation. Thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: If you'd like to read Sally's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.